Hello, and welcome to En Route, the podcast where we talk about life along the way. I'm Dennis Sanders, and I am your host. Um, make sure to visit uh, the website at enroutepodcast.org. And when you're there, you can subscribe to the show. And the show is available on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or on RSS. And subscribing makes it easy for you not to ever miss a show. And while you're at it, please consider uh, giving us a rating on whatever platform that you listen to. Giving a rating uh, helps other people to find uh, this podcast. Uh, it makes it easier. So if you can give a rating or a review, that would be incredibly helpful, and I would be eternally grateful. And while you're at it, why don't you share this podcast with a friend? That would help us out, too. So uh, today is another one of my uh, commentaries, and um, I decided I wanted to talk a little bit about something. It's something I've been trying to flesh out over several episodes, um, and every time I talk about it, I always feel like I'm crazy, um, because I don't know if anyone else is feeling the same way. Um, but I guess I'm going to go ahead and uh, share this because I want to see, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm seeing. And maybe there are some people out there that are seeing things the same way. Um, and hopefully then that will show that I'm not crazy. Um, for people who don't know, and I've shared this before, but um, probably about 13 years ago, I was um, diagnosed on the um, autism spectrum um, with um, what has been called, sometimes still called, Asperger's syndrome. Um, and one of the things that I notice, and there's, a, I think, a statement that says that people who are on the spectrum miss the things that everyone else sees and sees the things that everyone else miss. And that's how I kind of feel about this, the topic I'm going to share, is that I feel like I'm the only one that, see, that sees it and everyone else is missing it. But maybe if I share it... Um, Maybe that I will find out that there are others thinking about this, too. So what I'm going to talk about is about the Republican Party, and specifically really about the anti-Trump or never-Trump movement. And what I'm going to say here is really a critique, but I hope people understand that I'm not going after people. This is a criticism, but it is a criticism from within the movement, and it is a criticism from a movement that I support. But my criticism right now is that I feel as if this movement isn't really making a dent when it comes to confronting Donald Trump and Trumpism. There are times that it feels like the movement is more or less like um, Statler and Waldorf. Uh, if you are of a certain age, and remember watching The Muppet Show back in the 70s, then you know who I'm talking about. They're the two Muppets, uh, two human Muppets. They usually were sitting up on the balcony, and all that they could do is heckle. Um, that's all they did, and not make much of a difference any in any way. Um, 
And sometimes it feels that that's what the Trump skeptical, anti-Trump, never-Trump movement has been reduced to, uh, a kind of a, a being people who heckle, um, who may make jokes about leaders within MAGA world, but other than that, not really doing much else. Now, before people start throwing tomatoes at me, or however you can do that online, let me explain. This problem about the ineffectiveness of the anti-Trump movement really goes back to 2016 in the primaries. It was interesting that as as Trump's uh, popularity grew and grew, I kept expecting that there was going to be some counter-movement, something that said, this is what we believe in as Republicans, that we're going to stop Trump and all that he stood for. And, And nothing ever happened. Nothing ever came. Now, a number of anti-Trump publications have have come to fore, um, and also anti-Trump organizations. Um, Publications like The Bulwark and um, The Dispatch have sprouted up, and I think that they are doing a really great job in trying to critique some of the movement, or or critique Trumpism. Um, There are other uh, organizations like Principles First and Stand Up Republican that I think are doing a, a stand-up republic that are t- trying to call uh, Trump and Republicans to account. But it feels like there hasn't been any real effort to create some type of a strategy or some, of some type that really will support Republicans in Congress who want to challenge Trump and also recruit anti-Trump candidates to run for Congress. Now, maybe that will happen. I, that has been some of the talk about um, the organization that just launched back in uh, last month, the Call for American Renewal. That is an organization um, that has, has a lot of backing of a lot of well-known anti-Trump folk. And I hope and I wish them well, but as I watched the town hall um, in late June, I felt like the mood was something like other online meetings that I've been a part of in the Never Trump universe. I mean, they state their opposition to what the GOP has become, and that's good. And, you know, they try to present a different way, but there's no game plan. Um, is there a plan on how to challenge GOP candidates within the party, and especially in 2022? Or is there a plan of creating a third party? The thing is, is that uh, I have I've grown up in, in, in especially my adult years, kind of as a squish of a Republican. So I'm on the more moderate end, and so I've seen lots and lots of organizations trying to speak and maybe be the voice of moderate Republicans. And this reminds me of this, and that I've, and, and I feel like I've seen way too many websites of moderates and 
former Republicans that talk about taking the party back, and in the end, it amounts to very little. I just have not seen all of that. I remember, as I said, about 15 years ago, I would follow all these websites that were trying to steer the party back towards the center. But most of those websites went nowhere. Most of the organizations that came to, uh, sprouted up went nowhere. Um, I, in, 20, in 2009, I wrote something that was, it was a blog post, if you remember those, that was called Why Moderate Republicans Suck. And I was frustrated because I saw all these websites, all these organizations that would complain about the state of the party. And that was about it. They saw the need, but they weren't ready or they weren't willing to do what needs to be done, that they weren't willing to do the politics to turn things around. And looking back at what I wrote all those years ago, and I will have this in the show notes, I, I think that there are things that are improving. I think that there are organizations that are a little bit more long-lasting. But I also feel that we lack introspection, and we also lack direction. I mean, what's being done right now? We have representatives that were bold enough to support Trump's second impeachment. And all those people are being targeted. Um, basically, the Trumpists are running their own candidates against these people. What are we doing? How are we supporting those representatives? How do we, what do we do to counter this growing threat? But even before we do that, we also have to do some introspection because we have to answer the question, why was it that in 2016, when there seemed to be such a impressive amount of people running for president, why did Republican voters choose a man that was so incredibly incompetent and was racist and misogynist and had very little use for democracy? Something should have told us that if such a man could win, something was wrong. Something wasn't working. Was conservatism keeping up with the times? I remember last year, I was listening to the um, weekly Dispatch podcast, um, and that has um, three um, gentlemen, uh, Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French, um, all Gen Xers, and they all kind of talk about what's going on in politics. And there is one woman, Sarah Isger. <clears throat> now, I wonder if it's because Sarah is younger. I, I'm thinking kind of either young or younger Gen X or, or um, millennial. She had a very different viewpoint. There were a lot of people in this panel, what I remember from a year ago, that were kind of lamenting uh, that the party wasn't just like it used to be. And, and what, what they meant by that was that it was gone had strayed from its Reaganite um, bearings. 
she wasn't really that interested about that. She responded that, you know, that Reagan was 40 years ago. And that's true. I'm the same age of most of those uh, commentators on the dispatch. And that was 40 years ago. That was two generations of people. Millions, tens of millions of Americans that have come of age since that time. And what worked for Ronald Reagan, what worked for the Republican Party in the 1980s, may not work in the 2020s. Now, you will not hear much of that complaint. Because at least within the anti-Trump world, the belief is really that the voters have changed. That the voters were all of a sudden um, have become more amenable to racist pleas, more amenable to conspiracies. And some would even say, well, they were probably racist all along. Is there some truth to that? Yeah, there is. But I think that part of the problem is us. Part of the problem is that for quite a long time, the GOP has really had nothing to offer its voters, voters that were dealing with big changes to the economy. People who might have had a good uh, working class job all of a sudden didn't have those jobs. And the jobs that they had were no, not as secure as they used to be. Now, there were people who were not enthralled of Donald Trump that did have some ideas. And in 2008, Ross Douthat and, and Raihan Salan came up with a book that they called Grand New Party. And it was basically an agenda for, for the party, for the, for the GOP, to come up with an agenda that supported the working class. But the party didn't listen to that because at that time they were really bent towards a more libertarian moment. This was a time that Paul Ryan's agenda um, was all the rage and it was about taking on entitlements. So when people were looking to the GOP for help, what they found were people who were just saying, here's another tax cut. Now, let's be honest that Donald Trump did speak the language, and he spoke the language of the resentment, of the hurt, the anger that a lot of these people were dealing with, the, insecure, the insecurity that they felt <clears throat> And I think it's important to know that I think that those feelings were legitimate. Now, there are going to be people who say that they weren't. That these people were just a bunch of spoiled brats. That's actually the, um, the argument of someone like Tom Nichols. But having grown up and coming from a work, working class background myself, I know that some of those struggles that people were dealing with were real. And Trump was able to speak to those frustrations. 
Now, let's be honest, he had no intention of doing anything to change the condition of the working class. And to be honest, neither do many of his imitators like Josh Alley and J.D. Vance. So they're not going to be there to bring up the bread, but they can put up the circuses. And that's what they did. They were able to play to cultural issues that they that an audience could feed on. Ross Douthat has said that since that, you know, what Trump was offering really was, uh, quote-unquote, the evil twin of his, of what was Daltha and um, Salam's working-class conservative agenda. So we have a party, at least, that really had an agenda that didn't line up with the people. And the people went with someone that they thought was closer to that agenda, even though this person had danger signs written all over him. And people are still choosing Trump over the never-Trump crowd. Earlier this year in um, suburban Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, there was a primary um, to replace a... uh, um, representative who died in office. So they had, um, obviously, many people, many Republicans going for that seat, and one of them was Michael Wood. He was an Army veteran, and he ran in that candidate really as a anti-Trump candidate. He got the endorsement of all of the establishment in some ways from the Dallas Morning News. Um, He got uh, an endorsement from... um, Adam Kinzinger, the Republican congressman from Illinois, who's very anti-Trump. He had all these things that were kind of adhered to what was the old-fashioned conservative. And the result was he got 3.2% of the vote. People didn't buy what he was selling. And what he was selling was old-fashioned conservatism. But that conservatism just didn't work anymore. Now, many observers think that the more and more people um, fall and bow down to Trump, the more and more the GOP becomes a danger to democracy. And that is true. I, I, I do think that the Republican Party has taken an anti-democratic turn. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the big lie. And, you know, the, the whole point here really is to sow doubt in democracy. That's kind of why the, these, uh, the, the audit is taking place in Arizona. It's about making people question what's going on and making people not trust so that at the end of the day, the only person that his followers can trust is him. Even though Trump is not trustworthy. The problem right now, I think for anti-Trumpists is 
um, they have basically um, done a good job of being against, and, and that is true, but they have not really said why it matters. Why does it matter to support The problem is, is that anti-Trumpists have failed to understand really the nature of Trumpism and have failed to really read um, the current uh, time. We who see Trump for who he really is don't really understand in some ways why populism exists and what it means ultimately for our political system. Jordan Kyle is an um, analyst with the Tony Blair Institute. And um, she has a great, distills a great, um, I guess a, it was a um, seminar with several people. Um, but kind of talking about what populism is all about. And the populists don't simply criticize elites. There's nothing wrong with criticizing elites. That's part of, of, of a democracy. But a populist is really trying to say that they represent the true people, the real Americans. That is what Trump has been trying to do, to say that his followers are the real people, the real Americans. Everyone else is not. Anyone else running against the populist is illegitimate. The populace basically exploits the fears of the true people. One of those fears is that fear that their, com their country is being taken away from them by people who are different from them, uh, that immigrants, basically. Now, when we hear that, when we... We who are never Trumpers and also most progressives and liberals and even moderates hear that, the minute that we hear that that they are concerned because the country is being, they feel overrun by people who don't look like them, that stops us in our tracks. We stop thinking. We stop because what this signifies is that these people have to be racist. And we're not going to cater to a bunch of bigots. And we stop, to li we stop listening. And so what we do is that we make fun of their prejudices. We tell them that they're silly and stupid. And we don't really understand why do people feel this way. Why do they feel that someone who comes from another country is going to cause them harm? What we fail to see is that at some point, the democratic system hasn't worked for these people. They no longer trust a number of democratic institutions. They don't trust parties. They don't trust politicians. They don't trust government in general. And all they have to be given is this siren song from the populace. And the populace then tells them 
that it is only the populace themselves that can be trusted. Everyone else is illegitimate. That is what we're up against. It is not um, inevitable that we our democracy is lost. It is not inevitable that populism will take over the GOP. But we do need to know of its strength. We do need to know why the populace does what they do. And we have to be willing to look at the people not as cardboard racists or racists in general, but as people, and to realize that there are probably many people that can be persuaded. But to persuade them, we can't sell them the same old, same old. Talking about less government and talking about tax cuts is not going to cut it anymore. We have to be willing to craft a positive vision for the future, and it means thinking about what's going to meet the needs of a skeptical and fearful populace. And that means doing something that is hard and difficult and puts us in a vulnerable spot. Because it's a lot easier just to take pot shots at Trump and at MAGA world and talking about how crazy they are. And it's all true. But The harder thing is to sit down, think about what's gone wrong, and think about what it means to come up with new ideas. To come up with new ideas instead of just giving, talking about less government. Are there ways that we can continue to strongly support free trade and see where there might be needs where the government can Inter, can, can intervene and help people who are, have to deal with the vicissitudes of um, the economy. Can we talk about people's fears of losing control without immediately telling them that they're racist and basically making fun of them, which is exactly what Trump wants us to do? The thing is, is that when we see someone like Trump enter the scene, when we see someone like him who is not just running but is popular, it's a sign that our political system is not working properly. And it means that we have to adjust accordingly. And that means getting off of our high horses and see where the system has fallen short and then We have to get to crafting policies that can help people and undercut the power of the populace. But of course, to do that means we've got to look inward. We've got to be willing to put in the hard work. And we have to be willing to move beyond our Statler and Waldorf stance and be willing to do more than send out snark. I talked about uh, Tom Nichols earlier. Um, Nichols is an academic, um, pretty well-known anti-Trumper. He does snark very well, and he is taking issue. He wrote a uh, link on Twitter 
a tweet storm where he takes issues with a recent argument by David Brooks, where Brooks is saying um, he wants to kind of listen to these people to try to present a different viewpoint. Nichols is not having any of that. He just views these people as lazy, that they're lazy people who want to believe the lies. As I said, Brooks wants to understand. He wants to offer solutions in order to defeat Trump. And Nichols wants to basically call them bigots and racists and narcissists and basically ignore them. But think about this for a moment. If you call people racist, if you tell them how horrible they are or tell them that they're lazy, what do you think they're going to do? Do you think that they're just going to say, yeah, you're right, I'm going to stop following Trump? Or are they going to buy into what Trump is saying to realize or to think that Trump is right, that these people are looking down at them, that they are everything that Trump says they are, and that they are the true people, and the true people are the people that Trump cares for. They're going to go and support Trump because Trump is going to be the one that they believe listens to them. Making fun of people, calling them names, that makes you feel good sometimes. But it's not going to solve the problem, and in fact, it's going to make it worse. But the thing is, and what I'm worried about, is that I believe that unless we are serious, as we see this as a political fight, where we're willing to support um, the candidates who have opposed Trump, giving them space, doing letter-writing campaigns on, on, and contacting congressmen um, during important issues. If we aren't finding ways to raise money for these candidates and raise money even for uh, candidates outside of Congress to run maybe against a Trumpist. If we don't do any of that, if all that we do is sit on the sidelines, then we're basically allowing the populace like Trump to win. And what they want to do is to destabilize the system. I really hope that in the next few months, the anti-Trump, never-Trump side is much more active and has an idea of what they want to do and how that they can um, really wrest control from Trump. Because I think Trump is playing for keeps. As a lot of people have said, January 6th was not a one-off event. It's a dress rehearsal. And if we want to prevent chaos from happening in 2022, but especially in 2024, we have to get busy. 
we have to do something to counter the Trumpists. And I know some people will say, well, we should just throw in our lots with the Democrats. And there are, I think that there are cases where there are, there's room for strategic alliances. But I don't think that it's a good idea to put everyone on one side of the ledger who is pro-democratic and then to have another side that isn't. That just even, I think, shows and makes democracy in America even weaker uh, because then we're only relying on one party uh, to make a difference. And to be honest, that one party is not doing so well these days. I have no idea where we're headed. I do hope that never Trumpers and anti-Trumpers are will get organized. But my fear is that won't happen. And my fear is that we will continue to see democracy threatened. I hope I'm wrong. But we're in for some very bumpy days ahead. Before we leave, there are actually, um, there's actually another issue, topic that I wanted to talk about, and that is um, J.D. Vance. Vance was someone that I actually liked. Um, I read his book, Hillbilly Elegy, in 2016, and it was fascinating to read it because I felt that he was he was actually talking about something that I've already had already seen um, within the black working class um, and what had happened with the loss of jobs and how that affected people. I thought it was a good book. I know there were lots of people, um, people that I know that did not like the book and I still think it was a good book, but, and he became this person that really was, a go-to person um, that talked about, that was a conservative, but talked about the poor and how maybe there are things that we need, the government needs to have a bigger role than what it has in the past. And um, so I was very hopeful for him because I thought maybe he could bring a different version of the GOP, one that wasn't the old tax cut, small government, but also was not giving in to the Trumpist kind of racist um, project. And so I really wanted to believe, and he, you know, he was on different um, groups and different um, AEI and other things talking and, and I think brought about some kind of smart commentary. And um, he got a lot of, of pushback from the Trumpists and he even tweeted his own opposition to Trump. That was at least what he used to do. As of late, he has become more and more Trumpist. 
Um, and in fact, there is a recent article in Politico where he basically says that he was wrong about all the things that he said about Trump in 2016. And he has, be- went, has become a full MAGA Trump pleasing candidate. Um, and the things that he says now are very um, kind of very anti-American, not very helpful. Um, it's um, kind of it just seems a lot more you know, he wants to bait people, he wants to uh, fight them. This isn't the guy that I read five years ago or, or who wrote, I thought, really thoughtful articles. Um, this wasn't the guy, I thought, who was going to be a troubadour of some way about the working class and offer real policies um, instead of basically kind of offering rants and sneers towards people who are different from him. I didn't expect him to become a mini-Trump. But it seems like in this day and age, the only way that you can run in the GOP is to play the game. And maybe that's the thing that is so infuriating to me, is that this wasn't someone who already was some nutcase, nut job. But he decided to go down this path. He decided to try to be, quote-unquote, useful um, to the party. And, and the thing is that I don't think he understands. If he doesn't win the primary, he's basically shot himself in the foot. Because I think he was someone that a lot of people listened to. And once he has gone down this road, and who knows what he will do to as he goes farther down this road, you can't get that back. He will have lost his credibility. No one will believe him. And I think he will have hurt himself. And um, I think it's sad. I, I'm, to say that I'm, I'm upset, I'm not really just upset. I, I think it's a sense of feeling had. And I don't think that he necessarily was tricking people, but he did choose this. He chose to decide with the devil um, and he knows what the devil was like but he did it anyway and um, you don't get back from that um, I don't know if you get forgiveness for that and I think that he has unfortunately made his bed um, and someday maybe not today maybe not tomorrow but someday he's going to have to lie in it, and um, it will not be pretty. And he will not get any sympathy 
from a lot of people that once thought that he was a good guy. There is a price to be paid for expediency, and there is a price to be paid for doing whatever it takes to win. There's a price to be paid for doing the wrong thing, even though you know when you know it's wrong. So, he may be popular now. Who knows? Maybe he'll win the primary. Maybe he'll become the next senator. But no one who used to believe him and now feel betrayed will ever support him. And he will, at some point, face his consequences. I'd like to thank you for um, listening to this episode and for listening to this podcast in general. Probably not the most um, positive of my podcast, but we're not really in positive times, are we? I do want to say thank you. Um, There are so many different podcasts out there, so I'm thankful for those who listen. Um, Again, make sure to visit the website. You can um, sign up to be on the mailing list. Um, I have a newsletter that is out. Um, You can, to sign up for that, you can listen to past episodes, read past articles. Um, Also, while you're there on the website, you can make a donation um, to support this podcast. And any donation is um, great. It could be a dollar, it could be five dollars or ten. Whatever you feel you would like to do to support um, the work of this podcast. And again, uh, don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, to Google Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to, and leave a rating or written review if you can. That is it for this episode of Enroute, Notes on Religion, Politics, and Culture. I'm Dennis Sanders, the host. Take care and Godspeed. Godspeed.